try to quiet you down. Because this is church. This is how church is supposed to work, where people are actually glad that you're there and they're happy to see you, good to meet you. If you just made yourself a best friend and you need to go out to coffee right now, go do it. That's fine. We're okay with that. We're securing ourselves. Glad to see you interacting. I have three quick announcements before we jump into scripture this morning. Boots, babies, and turkeys. Okay, boots, babies, and turkeys. Ready? Announcement. Announcement one. Boots. Boots. I don't know if y'all have heard. Winter, she's a coming. And it's this week. So, one of the cool things that we have uh, had the opportunity to do with this church is we've partnered uh, with uh, Ace... Ace Hardware, I can't remember what their long title is. There's Mountain and Sports in the title. I don't know, the Mountain Macy's across the, you know, down the way. And they, they sell us boots uh, at wholesale prices so that we can in turn give them to kids that may not be able to afford boots. Uh, so if you would like to help with this, one of the neat things about this is this doesn't take a lot of volunteers because they actually are able to come to us and pick up those boots. But if you want to help support it, you can give either through the offering box or online to help with that. So boots, what was the second thing? Babies, babies, loving the babies. I love babies. We've got so many babies coming to our church. And one of the cool things that we do, yeah, people are excited. Babies ought to excite you far more than dogs. Just going to put that out there. Woo. By the way, Jesus didn't come to die for dogs. <laughs> but... <laughs> Now that I've completely alienated some of you, <laughs> one of the things that we have a tendency to do here is to celebrate the first baby of a family that's a part of our church. So Gabe and Sarah are having their first baby. All of the information to join together in a baby shower uh, is up there. It is a co-ed, so if you're a guy and you're like, man, I've never had an ch- opportunity to go to a baby shower. Have I got news for you? There's one. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Boots, babies, and what? Turkeys. Turkey shoots next week. Um, If you have someone in your life that is the diesel truck driving, boot wearing, America toting, needs to shoot guns but won't come to church, have I got a good opportunity for you. Invite them to the turkey shoot. There's no limit on how many people can be involved. It's a family event. Come join us. We're going to get together. No turkeys will be harmed in the process. It's just a good time to get together. And uh, there, are, there are always, every year we do this, people that never show up at our church, uh, but will come and, and be around Christians for this. And we will sneak some Jesus into them while we get there, uh, because that's really what's going to be the best for them. Um, that, those are my three announcements. I'm going to bring up Ryan, who you may not have met. Ryan has one last announcement to share with you. Uh, as he is in the process of praying through and thinking through what it might look like to have a faith-based middle school here in the area. Here's Ryan. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ryan Aldrich. Uh, My family and I moved here in 2015 from New England uh, and really learned what snow was all about. Uh, Woke up to that. Uh, Anyone else from New England? Any New Englanders? Yeah, a few? Okay. Yeah, the brave and the few out there. Nice. So uh, I've been in education for over 20 years uh, at schools on the East Coast and out here in the West. And uh, I've worked at um, some faith-based schools. And moving here, uh, it's just been on my heart in prayer and reflection um, to explore the idea of a middle school in Tahoe. Um, I believe middle school is just such an incredibly formative time for our youth. It's a time when the, the relationship with Jesus is so important to draw closer to Jesus and God and help prepare them for high school. Uh, so we have a survey out. Um, you might have seen it in social media. It's coming out in your newsletter tomorrow, but you can also find it on social media to explore the idea, to hear your questions, um, just to explore the, the concept. Uh, and if this is something that God wants to see and follow his will. So um, we're exploring that, and uh, we are sending this survey out to Tahoe Church uh, and Sierra Bible Church. And with that, we'll look at next steps. Um, but thank you for taking the time to, uh, to listen to me and, and fill out the survey. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so that's all our announcements. We're going to jump into the Word. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you want to borrow one of ours, look at our fine-looking men that are carrying stacks of the Word of God with them. They would be happy to share one with you. If you don't own one and you like that one, keep it. We want you to have a Bible. Once you get one, or if you already brought yours, 
open it up to Mark chapter 12, where we get to continue Mark chapter 12. As you are uh, getting that Bible and getting all prepared, I'll tell you my silly dad joke for the day. What has two thumbs and is incredibly blessed to be here? This guy. This guy. Yeah? As, the, as this was my very first week um, as uh, part of the pastoral staff here, I've been very blessed by doing that. Thank you. Um, and to, I'm, I, I cannot, I, I, I don't have words. For a person that has words, I don't have words. Um, so I, I'm, I am very happy to be here. Um, and the Lord saw fit to strike uh, Pastor Jesse with a plague this week so he could kind of punctuate my first opportunity of being on staff by speaking. Uh, Jesse's fine. He is roaming around. I don't know if he's in here right now, but um, maybe you want to keep your distance because he's sick and stuff. I mean, he's feeling much better. It's actually, he's, he's fine. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Just like maybe cover your mouth while you're talking to him. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we have a tradition here where we try when we can to use our bodies to remind us of the significance of the words that are in this book. So I'm going to invite you, if you can, to stand with me. And we're going to read our passage. It's short enough that I'm going to read it in full. Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, Mark 12, 35... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he turned, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus, it would be my preference that you would physically be here, sitting here on this stage, talking to your people. I would love it. You've seen fit, though, for whatever reason, to use people like myself by the power of your spirit. We want to hear your words just as clearly as if you were here giving them yourself. So use this time so that we can understand you better. And Spirit, use what we hear to draw us closer to being what you've made us to be. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> One of the things that's uh, interesting about people, and when I say interesting, I mean like kind of sad, kind of funny, just kind of odd about human nature is that there, there are a few things that will almost be a guarantee can make money if they put them on the news, right? Because news stories are primarily geared to try to how they can make money by getting you to watch them. One of them is things that can make you afraid. And the other one is you getting an opportunity to see the mighty fall. We seem to just enjoy loving watching the mighty fail and fall flat in front of us. Whether it's some celebrity who finally gets caught for their devious deeds or some performer who publicly fails or hearing politicians make a fool of themselves with their words or slight versions of them. It's, I call it the train wreck effect. You ever heard that before? The train wreck? Like you don't wanna watch a train wreck 
but you can't look away. Like you, you just, you don't want to look at it, but you can't not look at it. I have a, I have a friend one time who I was talking to and I was asking her because I just, uh, they, they have made lots of these types of shows. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to make you feel terrible if you are like my friend, but where they like take one person and make them weed through a bunch of different people of the opposite sex and then they like get married or they go to an island or they, whatever it is that they do. I don't understand these shows. And I asked my friend who unabashedly enjoyed watching those shows. And I said, what is the deal? And she, without skipping a beat, said, watching these people be idiots makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> and I think I'm not so bad after I watch them. We love watching the train wreck. The, the last week of Jesus' ministry, in which Mark 12 takes place, is kind of like watching one of those train wrecks. And the people that were there watching, they were absolutely loving it. Chapter 12 started with verses 1 through 12 in which Jesus indicted the religious rulers, telling them, using this vineyard example, and saying, your religious leaders have failed. And he was saying it directly to their faces. You religious leaders, you have failed. And so they respond the same way that anybody who's getting attacked would. They attack back. And Caleb, last week, Pastor Caleb shared the message after that first section about the three attacks that they try to lodge against Jesus in response, only to get shot down three times in a row, ending in verse 34 saying, and at that point, nobody had the guts to come question him anymore. And then we get to verse 35. After Jesus has already told them, your religious leaders have failed, Jesus then turns in verse 35 and tells them, your religious leaders are also wrong. Matthew 22 is another place where this story is described, and Matthew includes the detail that Jesus, again, was directly posing this question to the Pharisees, and he asked them the question of 35. How is it that you say, how do the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? You see, it was largely assumed in Jesus' day, mostly because it was what they were getting taught, that the Messiah or the Christ would be from the lineage of David. If you have a version that's about this size, you probably could flip over one page to chapter 11 and look at Mark chapter 11, verse 10. This was at the beginning of the Passion Week in the moment that's often referred to as the triumphal entry. And the people are responding to Jesus in Mark eleven ten, and they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, who? David. They're speaking what they were taught. They were taught that the coming king would be of the lineage of David. Jesus intends to point out to them that what the religious leaders had been teaching them about the Messiah and this coming king was wrong. And he uses Jewish scripture to show it to them. Jesus quotes a portion of Psalm 110. If you want to put your finger in Mark and turn over to Psalm 110, I want to look at it real quickly. Jesus quotes just the first verse, which was a very common way in Jesus' day to refer to the entirety of a psalm because they didn't necessarily have numbers. He couldn't say, and you remember Psalm 110. He would just say the first line of Psalm 110, and those that had gone through the schooling necessary to have memorized the Psalter would know the rest of Psalm 110. Jesus brings up Psalm 110, and I want you to look at it. If you have the English Standard Version or the New American Standard or the NIV or any of those versions, you'll, I want you to notice the way that the lettering is there. Because the lettering points to something that might help any confusion that might raise from what's actually being said in verse 1. The first two words, the Lord, is, is your version in all caps? They're in all capital letters, right? But then it says, the Lord says to my Lord, does that one have all caps for you? No looks different. Now, the people that did the English translation of scripture, smart people. I'm not going to try to stand up in front of you and say that I'm smarter than them and I would have done it differently. But for a, for a couple of different ways, they decided to do the following. When 
The Old Testament scripture would use the word Yahweh, the name for God, instead of actually writing the word Yahweh, a lot of English translations have this all capital version of the Lord. So we're, we, we see here in verse 1 that David is writing, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David in his royal psalm is saying something about the person who is in charge of him. He says that this person is going to reign supreme. Jump down to verse 4. The Lord, all caps or lowers? All caps. Yahweh again has sworn and will not change his mind. You, talking about David's Lord, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 7 and does a really long and elaborate job describing the significance of this, but essentially boiling it down to that David's Lord would not only be the supreme ruler, but would also be the forever priest. And verse 6, He, this Lord, this forever priest, this supreme ruler, will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, what does your Bible say? The wide earth, the whole world. Is that more than Israel? It's not a trick question. Yeah, it is. It is. You see, Jesus then turns to these religious leaders, telling them that they are wrong, saying, but doing it in a very subtle Jesus-y way. David called him Lord, so how is he, the coming one, his son? You see, Jesus is trying to point out to them that this coming king is not just an earthly king, that the Messiah would be king of all, that the Messiah is far more than just about restoring Israel. Now, it's hard to know for sure whether or not the people fully understood what Jesus was saying, but what we do know is how they were reacting how were they reacting? What's it say there at the end of 37? That they were what? They heard him. Versions kind of say it differently, right? But was it like a tepid, tepidly, mildly happy reaction? No. The great crowd heard him with pleasure. They were looking at what was happening here and recognizing that Jesus was not only calling out the religious leaders for their failure, but also telling them that they were wrong about the most important thing of Jewish theology. And they were eating it up. This spectacle was better than anything that people watch on trash television. And Jesus then keeps going. Not only are your religious leaders wrong, not only have they failed you, but starting in verse 38, he then goes on to say that the religious leaders are also hypocrites. Verse 38, in his teaching, he said, what's the next word you have? Beware, or somebody else had a different version. Watch out. Look out. Be on your guard. Watch out for the religious leaders, but also watch out for yourself starting to look like the religious leaders. Why? Because they failed in the following way. Verse 38, they want to walk around in their elite robes and walk into greetings and receive, or I'm sorry, walk into the marketplaces and receive greetings. The religious leaders that Jesus is talking about here had a specific way that they would show the world how important they were. The word that Jesus uses for what they would dress in is stole. A stole is a long, ornate robe that is only worn by the eastern upper classes. So if they walked in, you would know, all right, that guy, that guy right there, he's important. He dresses the part, right? So these guys would walk into every single thing with their Patagucci and their Lululemon, and they would ensure that you knew that they had money. Now why? I've told you this before, just in case you can't remember, let me remind you. Remember in Jewish thought at this time frame, if you wanted to know if God was on your side, you checked your bank account, right? If you were getting money, God was 
on your side. You were doing things right. If you didn't have money, if things were going poorly for you, then that was God's judgment on you and you were getting what you deserved. So it was imperative if you were going to be a religious leader that you showed your wealth because that's how I can guarantee that you know that God's on my side and you should listen to what I have to say. But not only should you listen to what I have to say, but if you bump into me over at Rayleigh's, because of course I would only shop at Rayleigh's. I don't have time for the lions at Safeway. If you bump into me, you better give me the specific greeting that I deserve. Don't try to ignore, don't walk on the other side. I know you see my robe. You see my good, my, 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 uh, my fit is drip, as the kids would say. <laughs> I'm not sure if they say that. I just thought it was worth a shot. <laughs> and you best, when you see me, you best give me the greeting that shows that you know how important I am. Verse 39 they love the first seats in the synagogues and the first places in the banquets. You see, when you walked into a synagogue, the seats were assigned almost. They were, they were designated to show how important you were. If you were in the back, you were not important. If you were in the front, you were pretty darn important. But there were some special seats I haven't told you about yet. Now, some of you grew up in really fancy churches that still do this to this day. Not judging, but they still do it. Where the seat is here, and it's facing you. How would you know the important person in your church? They'd be sitting right here. These leaders are walking in in their fancy clothes greeting with the greeting that you best be giving them, and there's no way that they're sitting mid-row. No, no. You better make sure that I've got a seat right up here so that you can see right into my eyes and know that I am a pretty big deal. And you know what else? If you're going to have a party, obviously you're going to invite me. Obvi I mean, you wouldn't be so foolish as to not invite me right in my fancy clothes and the greetings that we have been doing and the seat that you always have. But if I go to your party, you best be saving the seat of honor for me. The special seat. I, I shouldn't have to stand along the wall at your party. I deserve the first place. This is what was characterizing the behaviors of the religious leaders. Jesus says this about them in verse 40. They voraciously devour the houses of widows. But they put on a pretense, a great show, an act, and they pray large prayers. On a play on words, Jesus describes these people as praying on the lonely, but disguising it by praying loudly. They were fake. They were fake. Now, before you start pointing your fingers at the fakery, remember the first word that he said, beware. Fakeness lies within us, too. It's not just them that's fake. We all have a tendency sometimes to be fake. But the train wreck that the people were watching is that Jesus was calling out directly the religious leaders, telling them not just that they had failed, not just that they were wrong, but that they were fake, that they were hypocrites. And so when we get to this last section, we would expect that the train wreck would continue. They're, the people are so eating all of this up because they're watching their leaders fall. The leaders have failed. The leaders are wrong. The religious leaders are hypocrites. And then we get to 41 and you wait for them or they would be waiting to say, tell us more about the religious leaders. And Jesus pulls a switcheroo. Look at it. Jesus sits across from the treasury. And he saw how the crowd was casting money into the treasury, and the wealthy were casting much. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the temple or if you've heard it described before, but essentially there was a building in the middle of multiple courtyards, almost uh, like layers of courtyards. And in those courtyards were the varying areas where you might be able to go depending upon how important or holy you were in Jewish culture. But the one area that everybody had access to was the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. Everyone could walk in there. So strategically speaking, if you wanted to put out some offering boxes, you'd probably put them there, right? The, the area where most people have access to. And sure enough, that's how the temple was designed. That all of the boxes that you would give to were in the courts that everybody could access. Now, a major reason for this was not just access, but also reaching far back to the Old Testament law. It was actually required of every Jew or every person who was even going to live like a Jew at a minimum of once a year to come and pay a certain amount of money into those treasuries. And that money would be used for the maintenance of the temple and the payment of those people that worked in the temple. Now, if you live far away, you may not necessarily come to the temple every year. But when you did come, it would end up being a big show for a lot of people because you had a lot of back taxes that you had to pay. So there was a box for back taxes. There was a box for this year's taxes. And then there was some extra boxes just in case during your big show, you wanted to give more. Everyone's already looking at you anyway. That's where, that's where everyone is gathered. So they're going to see it happen. This is what Jesus is seeing. Verse 42. And then came one poor widow. And she cast, and then the translators have a little bit trouble with the words that are here. I'm going to say them literally. They, she cast to lepta, which is a codrontis. Lepta was the smallest of the Jewish currency. Two lepta equaled a codrontis, which was the smallest of Roman coins, the most common of Roman coins. This, for you Bible nerds, is one of the indications that why we believe that Mark was writing to Gentiles and not Jews, that he had to explain the lepta as a codrontis. But nonetheless, either way, what we're seeing here is that this woman, this widow, walks up and pays the smallest denomination that can be paid into the treasury. Verse 43. So Jesus says, hey, disciples, huddle up, calling them to himself. And then he says his phrase, this phrase that you always know that he's saying, look, hey, this is one of these things. I know I'm talking all the time. Pay attention to this one. Okay, this is a big deal. Truly I say to you that this widow, the poor one, she gave to the treasury greater than anything else that was given. Jesus addressing his followers directly after having talked to just the religious leaders is now turning to those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. If you are in this room and would go by the same title, the truly I say to you is something that you also need to pay attention to. What's the lesson? Her gift was the greatest. The amount of her giving was irrelevant to the significance of her giving. Why? Verse 44. For all the rest of them are giving out of their abundance. But she, from her poverty or her lack or her need, gave all she had to give this is the next part that's like really frustrating for me. Because it doesn't make financial sense. She gave even that which she need, needed to live on. The words that Jesus actually uses there is she gave her whole bios, where we get biology. What she physically needed for survival, she put it in the treasury. It's not really normal financial advice that you would hear. Jesus has a way of saying things that make us uncomfortable, right? I mean, the, the truth is, 
I, I really am not uncomfortable talking about money from stage in a church. The Bible has a ton to say about money. God has a ton to say about money. It's my job to teach the Bible. I want you to know what God says about money. What makes me uncomfortable is listening to what Jesus says to me about money. It's not comfortable. But Jesus had gathered his disciples to hear this lesson. So maybe it's because I came from a Baptist heritage, but I managed to pull out three things that I need to say about money. Baptists are always doing their sermons in three things, by the way, if you didn't grow up Baptist. You'll hear me say three things a lot. If it's four things, it's, it's unholy. <laughs> I need to tell you three things about giving that we see in this passage. One, all all were expected to give. You see, in Jesus' day, it was the expectation that the people of God gave to the work of God. This started prior to Jesus, and it continued after Jesus. When we see Jesus' teaching, and we see how the church worked in the book of Acts, and then we read the letters of the New Testament to the other churches, the constant assumption is that monetary involvement in your church is the norm. It's the expectation. But, point two, the amount is irrelevant. Jesus looked at this poor widow, saw her offering, and said, in no uncertain terms, that her offering was greater than the thousands upon thousands of dollars that people were putting in the boxes. Yes, the assumption is that if you are going to be a follower of Jesus and continue in the heritage that we are, that you are going to give your money in support of what God is doing. But the amount is not what's important. Which should lead you to say, well, then how much should I give? I'm just going to show two verses. I told you that there's a ton in Scripture about giving. I'm just going to show you two verses. They're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 968. In 2 Corinthians... Paul talks a lot about his own ministry, and he talks about how his ministry is influenced by the Corinthians' giving. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to answer the question of how much should I give? Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How much should I give? Well, I mean, may maybe 10%. I mean, you've probably heard that before. You know, you've probably heard that word tithe before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't giving 10% of what you make. And that's a long practice in the church that is based off of something. But can I tell you this? There's nothing specifically holy about 10%. It's actually hard to find in a lot of spots of Scripture, finding somebody saying you ought to give 10%. It's not really there. Maybe some of you, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what you make. I don't want to know what you make. Maybe you don't know what you make. But some of you probably should give more than 10%. Like, think about this. In prep for this, I pulled up a list of the world's wealthiest people. Numero uno. Probably know his name. Elon. If Elon became a member of Sierra Bible Church, 
he would bring with him what is currently estimated to be 210, I'm going to wet my lips for this, billion dollars. 210, again, billion. If Elon gave 10%, I'm not great at math, so we'll do some rounding, and gives 20 billion dollars to the work of the ministry here at Sierra Bible Church. He would only have left 190 billion dollars on which to live. I feel bad for him. But here's the thing. It's not like I'm trying to, I'm not standing up here trying to preach socialism to you that we all have to like get rid of our money or whatever the case is. I'm just telling, if he was living on 190 billion instead of the 210 billion, would he even know? Probably not. Now look, I I use an over-exaggeration, a hyperbole, if you will, to talk about Elon, but the fact is, some of you in this room, if you gave 10%, you'd hardly even know. And that's something that you should talk about with, with God. But the opposite is also true. Maybe some of you should give less than 10%. You know, the widow is kind of an interesting story. She's not a perfect example of giving less than 10%, because in her case, she gave 100%. But you know one thing that got pointed out to her, that didn't get pointed out at all in this story? The temple tax, which I told you about, that these people were actually coming to pay, that amount was actually designated. There was a specific amount that you were responsible for paying. Two lepta was not the amount. It was a whole lot less. She was breaking the law. She wasn't following the law of God in giving her money. How dare she? Did you hear Jesus saying that at all? I didn't. He said her giving was better than anyone else's because the amount is not relevant. Which leads me to point three. Giving is not a matter of the amount. It's not even really a matter of charity. It's a matter of cheerfulness and trust. Cheerfulness and trust. You see, Paul says in verse 7, each one of us must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you make Sierra Bible Church your home and you give because you feel guilty, let me just tell you this. As one who now feeds his children on the generosity of you funding this church, Here's my official position. If you are giving because you feel guilty, stop it. I don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. You know how much God owns? More than Elon. You see, when you give... I mean, for those of you that have been here a long time, a long time, think back. When's the last time you saw an offering plate passed across a row here? I haven't. I'm pushing a decade here. Never seen it. Why? Because one of the cool things about this church is we figured something out. That if we actually believe and live in what's taught in Scripture, that God takes care of things. And God says, hey, look, you can trust me with your money. I'll take care of it. And so we try to model that as a church and teach you to do the same. We're not going to pass a plate in front of you. We're not going to try to make you feel guilty. I am going to teach you about money because this book, our God, teaches you about money. We got to teach you about it. But we put our, our offering boxes. You might even, if you're new here, you might even not know where they are. They're like inconspicuous little boxes with no signs. You have to go looking for it. Yeah, you can give online, but you have to go looking for the webpage. 
to go do it. We're, we're not going to guilt you into giving because that's not how it works. We trust that God is going to take care of our church. And we're going to teach you to do the same with your money. That you should give your money and trust that God is going to take care of you. What God is looking for is not your charity. He's looking for your cheerfulness. The desire that you have to please him and serve him and worship him with your finances. And that you would model this poor widow whose trust probably exceeds that of everyone in this room. Pretty much. Because she took her entire piggy bank, the whole bank account, all of it, and dumped it in and said, God's going to take care of me. Now look, I'm not even going to stand here and say you should do the same. That would be weird. But not impossible for God to work through. You see, giving is not about how charitable you can be. It's an exercise in trusting God with your finances and cheerfully sowing what you have so that you can enjoy the process of seeing how he works in your life. That's how it works. Not you taking care of you, but you enjoying being taken care of by God. The people that were listening to this message, they enjoyed seeing Jesus call out the religious leaders. But at this point, they probably felt like some of you in this room do now. It's all well and good until someone starts talking to me about my pocketbook. But I think, though, if you'll realize that Jesus' main goal through each of these topics, it was to draw us closer to himself, to increase our trust in him recognizing who he is. The Lord, the king of all. Laying aside all the things that we would do to try to look perfect and to manipulate our circumstances and instead moving closer to trusting him with all aspects of our lives. Which is why it's kind of a neat opportunity for us to take communion today. So I'm going to transition to that. I'm going to have the band come up and if you are one of the leaders in the room and you can have the availability, come on up and, and help uh, prepare communion. Or come on up to help pass. And if we don't have enough, then somebody else jump up and help. You see, taking communion today is a special opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to reflect. Guys, go ahead and start passing it up. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that Jesus is taking concerted efforts to call us to himself. I'm going to read to you the passage that's most commonly read before communion just to ensure that you're clear on what's happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23, Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you receive these elements this morning, take a moment to hear his call to you. And then respond with your trust. I'm not going to come back up and lead you through a specific time of taking it. I want you to take a moment to reflect. Once you have the elements and you're ready, take them at your own time. Take them as your act of trusting your king and what he has done for you. And then with a new song, we will respond to him together.
Sing that one more time together, church. Satisfy us with your love. 
when the sun when the sun comes up satisfy us before the day has passed us by before our hearts forget all your goodness satisfy us with May you be our portion. Maybe not trust in riches. Not trust in our strength. But Lord, be led by your spirit. May you go before us today. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that we are forgiven. As we remember in communion, Lord, your blood that was shed and your body that was broken. Lord, for the remission of sin. And Lord, we praise you. We honor you. May you be with my friends today as we leave this place. Pray for your safety in our snowstorm coming. Lord, show us opportunities to be light to the world. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and keep you, friends. Take care.